You're listening to Nightlight Radio Network. This is Dr. Bob Hieronymus, co-host of 21st Century Radio. We are happy to present this rebroadcast of our show on Nightlight. Our guest this hour is Lou Harrison. Our friend and sister of my favorite Beatle, George Harrison, Lou, has written My Kid Brothers Band, a.k.a. The Beatles. It's the never-before-told story of the author's crucial behind-the-scenes work as an American resident to guide Beatles manager Brian Epstein and producer George Martin, or so I say Sir George Martin, and assist them in the effort to spread Beatlemania from Britain to the United States. In the book, Louise Harrison describes and documents her efforts to establish nationwide contacts and help Epstein secure distribution agreements with Capitol Records and assist him in securing a meeting with CBS's Ed Sullivan. The book also describes Louise's experiences in traveling with the Beatles on their first American tours in the summer of 64, 65, and 66, including many untold episodes of their ever Present hysteria faced by Brother George and bandmates Paul McCartney, John Lennon, and Ringo Starr, and how they coped with Beatlemania. In My Kid Brother's Band, a.k.a. The Beatles, Louise tells of Harrison's Liverpool home becoming a regular hangout for the group and how her parents provided a nurturing environment for George and other Beatles. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio, Lou. Thank you very much. It's wonderful to be with you again, Dr. Bob. It sure is. Well, on your disclaimer, you note I've also included a few off-the-wall ideas and opinions for you to consider, gathered (laughs) from eight decades of my particular life experiences. Now, would you please give us a few examples of those off-the-wall ideas? Because I don't think they're (laughs) off-the-wall. I'm so glad you did them. Well, um, I don't know. I I think maybe I have a slightly different uh, opinion of a lot of things. Uh, For instance, you know, I find it a lot more important uh, to be concerned about uh, the well-being of our neighbors and friends rather than spending all your time watching a bunch of people running up and down the field kicking a ball. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. That's that's one of the things I find rather strange about humanity is the amount of time and energy and fervor they put into seeing which particular group of men or women kick the ball into the hole the most times. You know, it it seems to be a very very uh I don't know, um almost a death-defying uh, thing that people are doing all the time and yet I really don't see what difference it makes to the, um, what would you say, the well-being of humankind as a whole. Well, it doesn't make any difference except for the pocketbooks of the guys that are playing it, exactly. <laughs> and, the, and the ownerships <laughs> of the teams. I mean, it's just a game. It's just a game. And there are so many problems in the world today that are being <laughs> ignored. I mean, like in, in Florida today, you can't talk about, you can't say global warming. You can't say uh, anything about change, the changes of our weather. You, and it's the same thing as sticking your head in the sand. What do they? Don't they see what's going on in Texas? Don't they see what is going on in Oklahoma? You think this is all accidental, and it get, it's going to get worse, and it's going to get much worse. Uh, oh, yes. Excuse me, I got uh, carried it, it away. It really is. It's, it's really very scary. That you know the things that people get uh, 
very, very involved in. You know, I can see the point back many, many hundreds of, maybe, I don't know, thousands of years even ago when a sporting contest was used between the leaders of two different warring factions to find out who's going to be the winner. And it seems to me that, you know, if we could have done that with, um, you know, Mr. Bush and uh, Mr. Bin Laden, just had the two of them face off, you know, and see who was going to win, that might have saved an awful lot of problems and an awful lot of financial distress for the world. Some of my off-the-wall kinds of ideas, yeah, anyway. Yes, some off-the-wall <laughs> ideas. Those are pretty basic to me. Good stuff. Well, anyway... Your dad lived by an often quoted line of, uh, of lines of Shakespeare. Uh, would you share with us those lines that, and what it meant to you and your family? Oh, yes. Yes, he would say, This above all, to thine own self be true, and it follows as the night the day. Thou canst not then be false to anyone. And I have found that to be a wonderful, wonderful um, exhortation to follow for most of my life because, uh, in fact, I suppose in a way, the way we were brought up, we've, we've all would find it very, very different to not be true to ourselves. In fact, I think both my brother George and I have been um, uh, talked about as being uh, sometimes painfully honest <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. to the point where we've often been... Um, you know, yelled at for our honesty because uh, people haven't wanted to know the truth. So, uh, but it has been, I think, the best way to be because at least if you're always true to yourself, then if somebody asks you something three weeks later, you're going to be true and say the same thing that you said three weeks ago. So, you know, you don't get caught out in lies. Mm -hmm. Well, well, truth is real important, but what is the family Harrison curse? Why did totally trusting your parents lead to that curse? Well, you know, that was funny because, um, you know, all our lives we were brought up by very, very honest parents. I mean, they didn't even expect us to believe in the whole hocus-pocus about Santa Claus, you know. Uh, I mean, we knew there was a, a, a guy with a red suit and all that kind of thing, but we also knew that, uh, you know, that if we got any gifts for Christmas, that it was because Mom and Dad had saved up to buy them. But um, they, they were very, very honest with us about everything. And uh, there was some books published, well, many, many books have been published about the Beatles, and there was one with a whole lot of philosophy. And in it, there was a little chapter saying, the Harrison family curse. And I thought, what on earth is that? You know, I'd never heard of the Harrison family curse. So I started reading it. And basically the conclusion that they came to was that because our parents had been so absolutely forthright and painfully honest with us, that we expected when we grew up that the whole rest of the world would be honest as well. But, of course, uh, as uh, both my brother and I have found out, the rest of the world is not honest at all. And especially in my brother's case, you know, when he made a lot of money, an awful lot of um, predators and things came after him. And, uh, you know, he couldn't believe what people were telling him. Uh, fortunately, I haven't had that same problem, not being a wealthy person. There's not that many people trying to steal my money, you know. But that was the problem that he had. Well, here is something really surprising to me. How was it that George became the first Beatle to play live in the United States? Oh, well, that, that was easy. <laughs> um, I had, I'm 11 years older than George, 
And I don't know if anybody has the book, but on the very front cover of the book, there's a picture of, of George and I, and then there's a picture behind it of a group of people that were um, at the uh, party at the end of World War II. We had a party in the street of, uh, you know, to, to celebrate the end of the, of the war. And I'm sitting beside George, and, you know, I'm, I'm like nearly 14, and he's two, and I've got my arm around him, you know, so he was always my, my kid brother. And, uh, you know, it was very, very, uh, what's the word, uh, caring of him. Now, what, what again was the question? Cause I, I... Oh, well, he became the first Beatle to play live oh, yeah. in the United States. Yeah, so, how did he, how did so he how get he became, here? It was because, because I was so much older than him, I was already married when he was a teenager. And uh, I, was, I had just moved to the United States in 1963, and I hadn't seen him for a few years. And in the meantime, I had a son and a daughter, his uh, first niece and nephew. And so uh, in 1963, they were making a decent amount of money, finally, you know, after trying to get somewhere with their music. And um, my husband was a pretty successful engineer, so, you know, we were quite well to do. And so uh, anyway, towards the end of the year, towards the end of August, anyway, uh, George wrote to me and he said that um, he and Ringo were going to come over to the United States to visit me and uh, to meet his niece and nephew for the first time. So I was really thrilled and, you know, we fixed everything up. He came to the United States, to uh, Illinois, and at that point in time became the very, very first Beatle to set foot in the United States. And as luck would have it, and back in... Um, 2013, which was 50 years after his visit, the people of the uh, Historical Society in the state of Illinois uh, put a um, historical marker in the town of Benton, Illinois, to mark the 50th anniversary of George's visit. So, you know, there is a historical uh, commemoration of that visit in that little town. So you became the unofficial research, development, and promotional outpost of the newly minted Beatles. What did that entail? What did that mean? Well, you know, uh, as I say, you know, I was 11 years older than him and very much like, a well, obviously his big sister and uh, was always very caring, well, of all three of my brothers, but especially him being the baby of the lot. And so... When my mum, uh, well, let me say one other thing too. As, as a young child, as in my, you know, four or five years old and so on, um, you know, I, I had uh, blonde curly hair and everything, you know, it was very vivacious and full of life and uh, full of mischief and everything. And people used to say to my mum and dad, oh, you know, she's just like Shirley Temple. She should be in the movies. So I kind of grew up as a little kid thinking, oh, I'm going to be a movie star one day. So anyway, when my brother became a recording artist, uh, you know, my hamness or my, uh, you know, what would you say? Uh, You're a Leo. To be a star. Yeah, that kind of thing sort of kicked in, you know. Yeah. And so I thought, well, okay, you know, maybe I'm not going to be a star, but I can make sure that my brother does. So, uh, as I say, my husband was a uh, very uh, well-paid engineer, very successful at his job. And, uh, you know, we were living a very nice, plush kind of a life. And uh, I hired a housekeeper in order that um, when my kids were at school, I could uh, go and run around radio stations and everything to see if I could get their records played. 
And uh, I also um, ordered the cash box on Billboard and the Variety magazines, weekly, uh, you know, magazines I started getting in order to research the, you know, the whole music business in this country. Because one of the things that was I realized right at the outset when I moved here was that the whole music business was very, very different because mm-hmm. in England, you know, if you get the BBC to make notice of you, and start playing your music, then the whole entire country knows all about you. You know, it was just yeah. that one entity right. that you needed to uh, impress. Whereas in the United States, back in 1963, there were approximately 6,000 independent radio stations, and of course there's a lot more than that now. But um, back then, in order to get national coverage, as I soon discovered going around radio stations, it, you needed to have the... Um, uh, the, what would you say, the clout behind you of a major um, re- recording company. And so one of the things when I started writing to Brian, Brian Epstein, I started telling him that the uh, the three most important ones were Columbia, RCA, and Capital. <laughs> and I said to him, you know, you really need to get um, the, you know, get the boys the music onto one of those major major labels otherwise it's uh, you know like uh i don't know paddling up a stream with no paddle you know that's right uh, yeah. it's trying to get things on the radio so uh, those are some of the things that i wrote and told him about and he was writing back to me wrote a few letters back which are some of them which i still have and one of the things too i found out after a while that capital records was actually uh, on the same, under the same um, major, major corporate head as EMI, yeah. which was the label that they were with in England, with Parlophone. And so I urged him to go after Capital. And he did that. He tried to get a Capital to um, play that, you know, to take them on. And I think he tried a couple of times before they finally agreed to actually take the Beatles onto their label. And then at that time, they did agree to do some promotion for them. And at that point, towards the end of the year, was when uh, I Want to Hold Your Hand came out. And they also, at that point, started doing a big campaign in all of the magazines, like Billboard and everything, with four little haircuts everywhere, you know, a little, little like a cartoon of the four haircuts saying the Beatles are coming or, or they are coming. I can't remember how it was now. But trying to intrigue people about this four little haircuts and say they're coming soon and all these kind of things to uh, create an interest in them. And that was part of the agreement that Brian got them to do in well, order to, uh, you know, create some excitement about the thing. Well, we, then, have, we have an agreement with our, our bosses here. we got to take a break. Now, the, the, one of the things points I really wanted to make here was that that uh, Brian Epstein would have made a lot of mistakes without you. You're you're being very modest about this. You well, are you, know, you are being it. modest about this, dear, because he he was going to go after a much smaller uh, record company here, and and you steered him in the right direction. So I think that was super important. But we need to take well, it. You know, the thing was, you know, Brian was a nice fellow. And he, in his own book, admitted that, you know, he was a big disappointment to his father because, you know, he wasn't like a, a 
very, very smart uh, pupil at school. And that's why his father put him in charge of the record department in the store. And with that, we must stop because I've got to take a break here. And we'll be back with our guest, Louise Harrison, sister of Beatle George Harrison and author of My Kid Brother's Band, a.k.a. The Beatles, acclaimed press. Available online at Amazon or Barnes & Noble and or by clicking the quick link on the front page of 21stCenturyRadio.com. Oh, of course, our guest is Louise Harrison, sister of Beatle George Harrison and author of My Kid Brother's Band, a.k.a. The Beagles. I used to call them The Beatles. Acclaimed Press, available online at Amazon or Barnes & Noble or by clicking the quick link on the front page of 21stCenturyRadio.com. Now, uh, when we were, we were um, leaving uh, Lou last uh, segment, we played Bangladesh. Now, you know, the concert for Bangladesh was one of the great accomplishments of your brother. And he learned a very important truth, which is basically that no good deed goes, goes unpunished. <laughs> How did that apply to Bangladesh and George? Well, George course, was, uh, what's the word, galvanized into action by his friend uh, Ravi Shankar. When Ravi came to talk to him about the terrible suffering that was going on in Bangladesh at that particular point in time, and George said, well, you know, let's see if we can't help a little bit by raising some money. So we went into, you know, overdrive, put, pulled together a bunch of his friends, and my dad and I were there helping as well. And we put we put on this wonderful, wonderful concert, the very, very first ever rock concert done to uh, raise money for a particular um, cause. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, we were we were all there working real hard at it. And uh, he, I think, the concert itself raised something like a hundred and some odd thousand dollars. And he wanted to send it off to Bangladesh, but then he found out that. Because he didn't have a 501c3, or in other words, a um, non-profit designation, he had just done this off, you know, out of the goodness of his heart to try to raise money. He didn't realize that money had to be designated in some particular form in order to be able to give it to the people that were in need. So uh, it was months and months and months of all kinds of arguments and things going around. And finally, I think he did go to the, the trouble of... Um, getting himself some kind of a um, you know, non-profit status. And then he was able to get uh, some of the money out of the country. In the meantime, he also made um, an album of the Bangladesh concert and also a documentary of the filming of it. Uh, so that also added to the coffers a little bit. But, um, you know, he, he was going through all kinds of um, misery <laughs> by, you know, trying to find a way... In still seeing pictures of all of these people that were suffering there in Bangladesh and knowing that he'd raised X amount of money and knowing that he couldn't get it to them. I mean, he was going through all kinds of, uh, you know, yeah. hell, really, yeah. uh, because he tried so hard to do something to help, and it was all being held up by uh, red tape. So, you know, I felt so sorry for him. Now, I think when he did start to do um, an organization. He asked me, did I want to be on the board of directors? And I said, no, I don't know anything about uh, business. And he laughed at me and he says, obviously, neither do I. But uh, anyway, uh, you know, 
that they did get it, some of the money eventually did get to help. And then the great thing that came out about it was, of course, that so many other people have now been inspired to do that kind of fundraising for different, uh, you know, things that are in need. Yeah, well, the only experience I had with Ravi Shankar is we were down at the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra, Baltimore Symphony Hall, and and uh, we were backstage, and uh, I had my my big album of Bangladesh, you know, a very rare one, and uh, <laughs> and, and unfortunately he wouldn't sign it for me. Oh, really? Yes, he wouldn't sign it, and uh, I was just just amazed. We had just made a thousand dollar donation to his uh, uh, to his work. And uh, he, oh. he said no. I mean, that was... <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe, you know, maybe his way of looking at things is a little different to ours. Um, I, I, I myself don't ask people for autographs, but um, of course there's an awful lot of people, uh, unfortunately, asking for mine, which doesn't really do them any good because I'm nobody, you know. <clears throat> well, that's not exactly true. No, not a true. <laughs> well, look, now, especially some of the important things that you're raising in this book, such as, why do you believe that overpopulation is our most crucial problem? And what part does the religious right play in this disaster in the making? <laughs> well, probably I better not talk about that too much or I might get shot. <laughs> no, well, uh, uh, <laughs> I haven't been shot yet. But, you know, uh, <laughs> but if you don't want to talk about it, it's fine. But I think it's a real important problem. Uh, well, it really is. Yes, it really is. Um, I, I know from my own upbringing, you know, going to uh, starting out with the, at a Catholic school and with a Protestant school, you know, both Christians, but two different um, uh, outlooks of Christianity. And, you know, the, the way the kids used to hate each other. And I just think it's really, really a terrible, terrible travesty that people going around the planet all the time professing to love the Creator, and yet all going around killing each other because they have different ideas of what the Creator should be or how they should worship the Creator. You know, I know from some of the things that we have learned, um, that, and from, you know, the things that I talked to George and my father about, was that the idea that, uh, you know, the Creator is like a big mass of intelligent energy uh, like if you can imagine it was an ocean and that we are individual drops of that ocean and that what we're looking for all our lives actually where we feel that we're not complete is because we are single drops of the ocean and when we feel we really feel as though we're complete as if we were again part of the entire ocean and full of, you know part of the power and the majesty of the ocean itself in other words uh, I was using that as a you know kind of a way to describe what we think of God as to be the, the ocean and that we are individual drops and that we all have a drop of God within us. And, if you know, if we could just think about it that way and say, okay, we're all part of that same ocean, so why should we all be fighting each other? Exactly. Well, we are one people on one planet, and sooner, we're gonna, sooner or later we're going to grow up and do something about that. Now, you say that Hopefully. George... George uh, started his much-publicized spiritual quest before he was a Beatle. When did when did his spiritual quest begin? 
Well, I think that so far, as far as it being public, that that did start after he became a Beatle, and after he became uh, after he met Robbie, and you know, got into uh, more of that kind of thing. But you know, it actually was um, maybe a subtle part of his growing up, in as much as you know, he was took the same things that Dad would tell me that he would have told George as well. You know, things like uh, this above all to thy own self be true. And George most certainly was always true to himself. So, you know, I think, and, and one of the other things that Dad said to me was, because I was getting all these messages from school and from the church and everything about, you know, that I had to pray and ask God to make me into a good girl. And they told me I was a sinner, you know, when I was four years old. And my dad said, no, you're way too little to be a sinner, you know. And But he, when I said to Dad, well, how can I know if I'm a good girl? And I thought, you know, if I prayed hard enough, I'd suddenly get one of those halos around my head, you know, and then I'd know I was good. And he said, no, he said, that's not the way to know you're good. He said, if you never, ever do anything to harm any other living creature, then you will be being good. Mm-hmm. And although it's, you know, it's very, very difficult to never, 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 ever harm any other living creature, still, it's a pretty good thing to sort of, you know, to uh, reach for, to do that. Well, sure. And so, you know, that's basically what we have tried to do, is not to harm any of the other people or uh, animals or creatures on the planet. Well, when you learned that you had a 168 IQ, you found that some, mm-hmm. yeah, sometimes... Don't know into that. <laughs> you, you don't want to go into that, too? <laughs> no, it, it's, it's okay. But, All right. Well, yeah, because well, my but, dad... What I was yeah, going to say... Ahead. What I was going to say is you found that sometimes it was a handicap uh, to have 168 IQ. Uh, then I was just going to ask you about that because I sure wish I had one of those. Uh, um, but <laughs> if you want to talk about it, okay. Now, uh, you also, let's see, correcting constant uh, misinformation generally dispersed about the Beatles is a main reason for your book. Uh, would you touch on a few examples of misinformation that you've corrected? Well, just um, I think possibly that the main one was this whole thing about George being the quiet one. Uh, he, he got a lot of uh, amusement out of that because, of course, he got that uh, title when he first came to do the Ed Sullivan show in February of '64. And he came down with a really, really bad strep throat. And his temperature was 104 degrees. And the doctor said to him, you know, try and rest as much as you can and uh, don't don't talk at, at all. So all of the press conferences, which he still was dragged to go to all the press conferences, but he couldn't say much because he could hardly talk. And so the press immediately dubbed him the quiet one. And he had a lot of fun with that later on because when people would ask him stupid questions, he would say, well, I don't know, I'm just the quiet one. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, so he would kind of make fun of it a bit. Well, there was a report by Jean Dixon uh, that supposedly she said that the Beatles would die in a plane crash. Did she really say that? No, no, no. no. There again, that was another one of the things that, uh, well, um, as m- m- maybe a lot of people do know, that I was doing <clears throat> when when um, after the first uh, shows that they did on the Ed Sullivan show, I accidentally got into doing radio reports, daily Beatle reports about them. And during that time, 
there was a, I was getting letters from all of the fans saying that Gene Dixon had um, predicted that they were going to be killed in a plane crash going to Indianapolis, and everybody was begging me to ask them not to go on that plane. Well, anyway, I got in touch with Gene Dixon's um, family, and actually I think it was uh, her husband that wrote back to me and said, uh, you know, she had never, ever um, meditated on the Beatles and had no... Uh, ideas of anything horrible happening to them, certainly not in the near future. And uh, so when I did my Beatle reports that week, I was able to say, you know, that I have been in touch with Jean Dixon, and she absolutely uh, says that there's absolutely no truth whatever in that rumor. And so those are the kinds of things that I was able to do when I was doing the Beatle reports, because, you know, the youngsters were all very, very sincere in their love of the Beatles. And that was another of the things that my parents both said to me was, you know, as the biological family of those four lads, it was up to us to give back the love. Yeah. And they they did that. They answered hundreds of thousands of letters. They would take in, you know, kids would come to the door. They'd take them in, give them cocoa and cookies and things, and even sometimes, many, many times, drive them back home. And uh, I myself answered thousands of letters, too. So, you know, that was part of the Harrison, um, uh, what would you say, our take on the whole Beatle thing was that it was our job to be supportive of the fans and to give back the love whenever we were receiving it from them. Well, you've actually dedicated your life to giving back the love. Why is that? Is it just your... Whoop, oh, my producer is saying time out here on 21st Century Radio. We'll be back with our guests. Uh, Lou Harrison, our friend Lou, and uh, author of uh, My Kid Brothers Band, a.k.a. The Beatles by Acclaim Press. And again, it's available online at Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, and 21stCenturyRadio.com. YellowSubmarineBook.com. That's YellowSubmarineBook.com. Hello there, this is George Martin, and you're listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Bob Hieronymus. Fish on the sand. Do you know what he's talking about there? Do you? It's really important. He's not... I'm not really sure that particular one. No. Well, I think... I, well, I think I remember... I think I remember his his teacher. His his teacher, his spiritual teacher. The sand was the teacher. His found the foundation of what he was talking about. Wow. I'm telling you, he that... His, one of his last albums was just one of the best, as far as I was concerned. Uh, just about... you know, it was funny because a couple of his last al- albums... It weren't selling very well, and I remember talking to him saying, you know, it's such a pity that, the, that you know, that not so many people are buying them because you have some really, really great insights yep. in some of your lyrics. Sure did. And he said to me, well, he said, as long as somebody understands it, Louis said it was worth doing. And, you know, finally, um, following up on that, <clears throat> there's a whole bunch of his songs that back in the past, I've been working with a band called Liverpool Legends for the last about 10 years now, and uh, during the intermission, what I have often done is to read the words of my brother's songs, you know, and interpret them verbally so that people can get what it was exactly he was talking about, with, you know, without the actual tune, without the actual music, but just to interpret the words. And so I'm going to be doing a few of those. I'm going to be recording a number of his songs just verbally, and then I'll just have my band, Liverpool Legends, put the um, the music to the back of it. So that's something that I might 
you know, it might be possible for people to buy it if they want to. That's a great idea. That really is. Uh, by the way, you know, Frank Sinatra wanted George to write and produce an album for him. What did I know. <laughs> what did George do? <laughs> well, it was funny because um, when he was staying at the Plaza one time, he was there for a couple of weeks, around about the Christmas season, um, and I, I was visiting him. I was living in New York at the time, too, and I and my kids would visit him quite a bit. And so uh, one night, he sees that we met him the next day, and he said, gosh, he said, I spent nearly all night in a broom closet trying to hide from uh, some of Frank Sinatra's um, men. But, you know, he had, I guess, a number of people that worked for him. Yeah. They were trying to round George up to get him to produce an album for Frank. And George was hiding in the broom closet most of the night to try to get away from them. So that's, that's what I know about that story. Well, I'm glad he protected himself because you can never tell in a situation like that because I remember <laughs> some of the experiences of, in uh, Frank Sinatra in Australia. Um, I believe he was never invited to come back after... Uh, oh, really? Yeah, well, I believe, you know, I, from what I remember... Um, there was a lot of problem with problems with anyone who got near Mr. Sinatra because he had several very large men in front of him wherever he went and they would swing their arms to make way, to clear ways. And I think they broke a few bones down there of very important people. Um, And so, you you know, you you had to really be very careful around Frank. You know, over the years, I've found, too, that, uh, you know, there are a lot of uh, big stars in this world. And some of them, you know, are really nice, very sincere, down-to-earth people. And others are the kind of people that they they stand there and act like, oh, you may come and adore me if you wish. (laughs) And uh, I don't know, maybe he was getting to be like that. Well, you know, you had a interest, interesting experience with a lot of close encounters. Uh, Bill Clinton's a big fan of yours. You want to say anything Bill? about that? Bill Clinton. Oh, yes. Well, I wouldn't say he was a big fan of mine, but I, I met him. And he was very, very nice to me. I met him right, right after my brother died. He invited me to his office in um, Harlem that time. I was doing a, a TV show. I think it was Good Morning America or the Today Show, one of those. And uh, he sent a limo to uh, take me to his office so that he could have a chat with me. And he was very, very nice. Also, and I've met him a few times since then. In fact, I was invited to the opening of his library, and my grandson came with me as well. <clears throat> you also uh, spent a little time with Mr. Obama before he yes, was president. That, yeah, that was funny because um, I was giving a talk at uh, a rally. Um, in was it in Mount Vernon, Illinois, and it was back many years ago when uh, Mr. Obama was uh, campaigning to become a senator, and of course he was very very little known at that time. And I had been giving a talk. Um, I guess it was sort of a political activist type of type of thing, you know, talking about the environment and so on. And I was I still hadn't taken my microphone off; it was still attached to my shirt, and. Uh, the mayor of the town came over to me and he said, Oh, Louise, he said, there's a young fellow here that would just love to have his picture taken with George's sister. And so this young fellow comes over and puts his arm around me, and now I have a picture of me with the president. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> then there's, of course, Bill Mayer. Bill Mayer. 
Whoa, that must have been some experience. But you, you had a very interesting experience with Tony Bennett. Would you like to reveal it? Oh, perhaps they better not. No, okay. All but right. It, you know, it's in the book, so let's just leave it at that. All right. Well, it was good to hear a little bit about Leon Russell, Russell before he passed on, and Tim Hay- Tom Hayden, Dizzy Gillespie, Peter Noon of Herman's Hermits, Beach Boys, Michael Moore as well. Wow, you've had yeah, quite a few. Now, that Michael Moore, that was a really interesting thing, too, because he was giving... Um, I was actually at the Clinton Library at that time, or the, um, and there was a, he was giving a rally at the time, an anti-war rally uh, at the University of Arkansas, and a whole bunch of the people from the library uh, drove me over, and we went to this um, rally, and <clears throat> you know he was giving a speech about uh, you know let's not have another war because what what good does a war do except kill a lot of people and make a lot of money for the arms. Uh, manufacturers, you know, and so uh, he, at one point, he invited me to come up and, uh, you know, say a few words, so I went up, and just, I never ever plan on what I'm saying for, you know, any, when I give talks at conventions and things, but I just wait and see whatever is going to come out of my mouth, you know, and so this particular time, it occurred to me that uh, talking about the war, uh, a little incident that had happened when I was a kid during World War II. And one day I'd come home from school and we'd all been talking about how we were going to tear the Germans limb from limb if they ever came anywhere in our neighborhood, you know. And so uh, during the air raid, you know, when the bombs were dropping around and I I said, oh, you know, we'll we'll tear these people limb from limb. And my mom said to me, "Uh, wait a minute, Lou, what are you talking about? So I was giving all this stuff that we'd been talking at school, you know. And she said to me, now, wait a minute. She said... "Uh, Remember Uncle Eddie and Uncle Jimmy? They were her two brothers. Remember how they used to take you to the park and take you rowing on the lake? And I thought to myself, what's that got to do with the air raids, you know? So I said, yeah, I remember. So he said, well, you know, those guys up there in those planes that are dropping the bombs, she said, they're probably somebody's Uncle Jimmy and Uncle Eddie, and they would probably far rather be taking their nieces and nephews out rowing on the lake instead of being up there dropping bombs on people they don't know and getting shot at and maybe being killed. Mm-hmm. Sure. And I thought, wow. And she said, you know, it's not the soldiers that start the wars. They are the only the ones that get killed and maimed. She said, the people who start the wars are the people who make the bombs. And so that was what I told it. Um, Michael Moore's rally, mm-hmm. and uh, apparently he put that on his website and for several days afterwards. Yeah, that's, uh, of course, what Bob Dylan is saying uh, The ma- in his uh, song Masters of War, which, of course, was banned. Yeah. <laughs> could, could talk about the fact that the Masters of War were making a lot of money and, and uh, <laughs> causing some few problems. The same, ones that are, the same ones that are trying to urge us to get into it again. Well, of course. You know, the, thing that, the thing that scared me today was these people saying we've got to send people on the ground, you know, to this thing about ISIS. And that's exactly what the ISIS people want, is for us to send troops, you know, put them on the ground and fight them. That's mm. exactly what they're looking for. And these idiots are standing up there saying, we've got to send 10,000 men over there. We've got to get boots on the ground. And, you know, that's exactly what ISIS is wanting. Of course. Well, you know, uh, 
what would you like to leave our listeners with tonight? But what what area? Because you've done so much in your life. Uh, you you know you note that there were many occasions when the welfare of the Beatles were overlooked, and boy, that was pretty shocking. Uh, yeah. the, the stuff uh, you know, food that's cold, uh, sometimes not delivered at all. Um, yes. And uh, and you know most people, and that's the way life is on the road. You know, in the past but especially, it, it was. It's not, not that much fun, though. You know, I think possibly, I know we don't have much time left, but I think the most important thing that I'd like to say to uh, our listeners is that as we go through life, the best thing that you can ever give to anybody else is a smile. And not just that, but to give care, you know, to care and be friendly and be kind to other people. You know, even if you don't know them, uh, you know, even if it's a total stranger, the best thing to do is give a smile. And, mm-hmm. you know, nine times out of ten, you'll get a smile back. There's so few of that happening. Everybody's running around being suspicious of each other. Whereas if we were to be kind to each other, maybe we would have a better world. It's worth a try. You know, if each person gives a, a smile now and again, it won't do you any harm. You made one reference in your book that uh, I found intriguing. I've always loved Irish humor. And uh, the very few Irish com- comedy tapes. I'm trying to think of one of the one of the individuals I listen to quite frequently, and his name has escaped me right now. Uh, but it was it's. I just love the way they talk. Uh, yeah. And and and, and to talk about smiling and friendship and that kind of thing. It's one of the things we loved when we were in Ireland. Uh, do you have any Irish in you? Well, my mum's family came from Wexford. Um, her, her father was a French family. It was spelt with two small F, you know, F as in Frank. Mm-hmm. Um, two small F, R-E-N-C-H. And it was a French family. Apparently, um, I think in the 11th century, they had come over from Normandy. And that's why when they got to Ireland, they were called the Frenchies. And that was her family, you know, is derived from that. They lived in uh, Wexford for many, many centuries. So uh, that's... I guess there's a bit of Irish in me somehow. Well, it sounds like it to me. I love your sense of humor. Well, our time is up here on 21st Century Radio, dear, and I've really enjoyed this work, obviously. I've read every word of it. You should see the copy of your book. Uh, Every page has been written on, and I'm sorry I had to do that, but I got (laughs) deeply involved with your work. So thank you for joining us again, Lou. And thank you, and can I say cheerio and a big hug to all of the people out there. Thanks for listening. We'll be right back. Welcome to Hour 2 of our interview from the Hieronymus and Company Archives. Now, over the past six months, I've been doing a lot of traveling and promoting my book Inside the Yellow Submarine, the making of the Beatles animated classic. Uh, and, And on the road and at various destinations, I've had the privilege of meeting many people whose work I've admired from afar. While in San Diego, I, I, I didn't get a chance to see its glorious beaches or its deserts, but, but while in the various enclosures, because that's what happens when you travel, you go from one enclosure to the next, uh, conference halls, etc., I had the opportunity to spend a little bit of time with Louise Harrison, George Harrison's sister, and although most would like to think of Louise or Lou as just George's sister, Louise is a planetary citizen who has definite ideas and values that I'm most comfortable with. 
In remembering her brother George on the anniversary of his passing, I wanted Lou to join us to reflect on not only George's contributions to the planet, but the, but the kind of things we need to do to serve our planet better, especially if it's, its environment. And as you will learn, Lou Harrison has been laboring to elevate our awareness as to who we are and and uh, why we're here on planet Earth. As a matter of fact, those are the same types of things. If you've heard any other, the other cuts from the brainwashed album just released or will be released in a couple of days, that's what George Harrison talks about frequently. Welcome to 21st Century Radio, Louise Harrison, or I'll call you Lou from now on. Okay, thanks a lot, Dr. Bob. It's wonderful to be here. How have you been, dear? Yes, I've been, well, I've been absolutely furiously busy remodeling an ancient old house that was built in 1905. Um, my daughter was concerned about me living way out in the country all by myself, so I found this little decrepit house in town, and so I've been fixing it up to move into. You're fixing the holes, is yes. that right? <laughs> and more than one <laughs> hole. <laughs> yes, well, I want to thank you for taking the time to join us in, in remembering your brother George and his work on the physical planet that we call Earth. And growing up with George, what things stand out about your early life together? Well, a lot of fun, you know, even though, um, well, by the time he was born, of course, the, the war was pretty well over, but um, we were still uh, going through the pangs of uh, rationing and shortages and all of that kind of thing. But, um, you know, my, my parents were the kind of people, they had such a great sense of humor, as most people in Liverpool do, and uh, so nothing in life was ever taken too terribly seriously, especially the serious parts of it. We were always ready with a joke <clears> and you know, a way to make light of the problems and to uh, see our way through to the next day, you know. So we had a lot of fun growing up and uh, just, you know, a lot of positive stuff went on. Uh, can, can you remember when George decided that playing a guitar was what he wanted to do most? Well, I was already moved out of um, Liverpool at that time, but, of course, my mum used to write to me. She, she was a great letter writer and, in fact, uh, probably wrote hundreds of thousands of letters to Beatle people all over the planet. But um, she wrote to me, you know, around about that time, and so did George himself. In fact, it, I suppose it was around about the time that my son was born. Um, it, he was born in April of 57, and I got a letter from George uh, just a few weeks after my son was born. He was all delighted about becoming uh, an uncle. And uh, he had just started learning to play the guitar. And he was saying, you know, I'm, I'm uh, so pleased to be an uncle. And uh, as soon as he's big enough, I'm going to teach him how to play the guitar. But, of course, 40-odd uh, years later, my son's still waiting for that first guitar lesson. I guess his uncle got a little bit busy in the, in the meantime. Well, when did you come to America? Well, I was in um, Canada and in South America for a number of years, and I moved into the United States, actually, in uh, March of 1963. Mm-hmm. March of 1963. Yeah, I'm actually on my mom's birthday. <laughs> on your mom's birthday. Yeah. Well, uh, the um, let's see, if March of 1963. That's uh, obviously a, when, a time when the Beatles were just about ready to hit it, hit it big. Yes, as a matter of fact, it was just about a week after we settled in uh, Southern Illinois that I received my first copy of uh, the first album that they had done in Britain, which was called uh, Please Please Me in Britain. 
and uh, I received that by mail. And uh, we had just arrived back from South America. We'd uh, spent a few months, well, actually about a year in South America. And so most of our furniture was on its way back, and some of it was sort of battered and bruised. So I received this album from my mom, you know, which in Britain at the time was number one. And uh, so my husband and I went rushing out to uh, the nearest store to buy a, a stereo system so that we could play the album. So I remember that very, very well. Well, after the success of the Beatles, what was it like being related to a Beatle? Um, well, I, I guess since I've never known what it's like not to be related to a Beatle, it's kind of hard to answer that question. It, it, it's always been, you know, a part of my life uh, from the time I was in, in my early 20s. And uh, it's been a very, very uh, exciting, um, it's been a lot of responsibility because um, both my, my parents took the whole thing of the Beatles um, with a lot of fun, but they also took the responsibility of uh, caring for the global family of Beatle people. They took that as a great responsibility and also as a privilege. And so, you know, I've always considered that um, you know, it's not something you can just sort of flap away. It, it's something that is important. Um, not not meaning this to sound uh, big-headed, but in a way, it's a little bit, being related to the Beatles is a little bit like being related to the royal family in Britain. You know, where wherever they go, they're greeted by people who want to meet them because they're the royal family. Mm-hmm. And in the the world of Beatle people, um, as you know, because you met me at one of those events, um, you know, people are wanting to meet close relatives to the Beatles, uh, you know, because we are part of that family. Well, you can say that again. Because the, <laughs> the line that stands in front of Louise Harrison is only about 12 times larger than the line that stands... <laughs> in front of me when I'm signing books and and uh, you know and and it's amazing to watch the um, the people in the line that are in front of you because they've say, they've obviously seen and met you before they're some like old them. friends aren't they some of them yes, yes. yeah uh, and uh, some of them are are very young oh yes i'm i've uh, i'm very amazed at that and, and within the the few um, well, not a number of places that I've been. Beetle fans now, especially in the Yellow Submarine, are between the ages of two and three years old. Absolutely, I'm, yeah. I'm signing books to two and three year old children who can't read. <laughs> yeah. and, and I'm still signing <laughs> autographs for people in their 80s as well. So it, it spans the whole spectrum as regards um, age, uh, size, shape, color, creed, and everything else. It sure does. Yeah, there, there are no boundaries to, uh, you know, the, the Beatle family at all. Did you become a teacher? No, I was supposed to. That was what my mum wanted me to yeah. do. Mm-hmm. And uh, all of the nuns at school wanted me to become a teacher, but um, I, I wasn't really particularly enamored of that idea. I would rather have been a movie star, you know, myself. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a Leo, you know, and I've always been, um, what's the word, a center stage type person. Mm -hmm. So I've I've never ever been uh, a shy, retiring, shrinking violet. Uh, You know, I've always been ready to be out there and, you know, bop along in the front and, uh, you know, be, uh, you know, making, having fun and uh, enjoyment with the crowd. Well, you certainly do have a great time. (laughs) 
you know, and they have a great time talking with you. That's obvious. I've watched it. Now, when uh, we're going to move off the Beatles for a little bit and move on to you here. When, when did you become aware that there were some very serious problems with the Earth's environment? Well, I suppose I've always been aware on the periphery of my consciousness, as most people are. But it wasn't until I became a grandmother at the beginning of the 90s, you know, at my, um, I think my first grandchild was born in 1988 and uh, the second one in 1990. And I started to look further into the future, you know, saying, well, okay, in 30 years, you know, this little guy is going to be 30 years old. And then starting to think about how our um, planet was, our life support systems are deteriorating. And, uh, you know, to see what we can do to, uh, to stop the degradation and the, um, you know, the pollution and the, the waste and all of those things that we're doing. Well, we, we've, been, we've known about this for, for decades, and it's just so sad to see how slowly we've approached this problem. It's uh, obviously a very thorny political issue among, with, oh, yeah. with some individuals. Yeah. But I don't think it's going to be too political in the years to come because, let's face it, we are, we are in serious, serious trouble in regards to not it's not just ozone it's not just pollution uh it's treating treating our planet like a big machine i think is a very big mistake yes instead of realizing that it's uh, you know one huge living organism of which we are an integral part and we are probably the most destructive part i mean all of the other creatures living beings that are part of the planet uh, are living in harmony with nature whereas we thinking that we are so wonderful and marvelous and uh, intelligent and all of that uh, are you know, going to great extremes to totally rape and plunder and self-indulge ourselves to our own extinction, actually. Yes, we are. The rainforest is still in great jeopardy, friends, and we, we've been talking about the rainforest problems uh, for decades uh, and, and, and watching it being destroyed. And I think it's a matter of what's called... G-R-E-E-D, and I think Absolutely. it's... I, think I, I created this for my cartoon thing, a little guy, a little horrible little green slimy monster whose name is Gimme. <laughs> That's a good one, yeah, Gimme. Greed, yeah. yes. Uh, yeah. Just give me everything you got. Oh, yes. Yes, well, we're going to take our break here on 21st Century Radio with our guest Louise Harrison, George Harrison's elder sister, recalling his influence on their family and the world. And, of course, what is she doing today? She's, she's not just sitting around there combing her hair, friends, and, and looking at new shoes and fixing houses. She's got many important ideas, which we're going to talk about in the, uh, well, in the next 40 minutes. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Raymond Eric of the Doors, and you're listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Bob Hieronymus. The indie music was really just another stepping stone to get me onto something, onto the spiritual side of it. And uh, so there people over the thousands of years have had to turn to themselves, you know, for some answer. And uh, so it's, they've got this great spiritual quality which is lacking in the West. You know, the whole thing of religion in the West, which is, like you were just saying before, question mark. And people are questioning it, it, the whole thing, you know, you know, the same sort of thing as Jesus Christ, because it is, it's all the same scene, you know, there's only one religion really, you know, whether you're Christian or Hindu or Buddhist, whatever it is, they're all only branches off one big tree. The more you go into it, 
Dr. Moisino, Plato said, as for me, all I know is I know nothing. And that's what it is, you know, the more you learn, the more you know that you don't know anything. Between the Devil and the Deep Blue Sea from his album Brainwashed. Have you had a chance to listen to that album yet? Well, actually, the most that I've listened to it has just been now. I've uh, heard a couple of little bits on the Internet, but that's about it. I, I really um, prefer to wait until I get the whole thing in my hands, you know, and, and listen to it properly. Oh, yes, you have to give it a proper listen. That's right, yeah. Now, you've, you've attended and continue to attend numerous Beatle festivals from around the planet. What was your purpose in becoming involved with those who had great appreciation for the Beatle music and its philosophy? Well, it, it really goes back to um, the early 60s when my mum and dad uh, just uh, spontaneously took charge of uh, answering you know, hundreds of thousands of letters from Beatle people all over the world and becoming an unofficial mum and dad to the family of Beatle people. And then after they were gone, I sort of continued uh, to be either the big sister or the mum figure for or whatever, whatever people want to see me as a family member to them. And then, uh, as I was saying earlier, once I had grandchildren and started realizing that um, the planet's uh, our life support systems were in a bit of a mess, actually I was at a, a Paul McCartney concert in the mid-'80s, and uh, at that time he was showing a 15-minute um, little film of some of the things that are wrong on the planet, you know, that are going wrong. And I was talking to a bunch of, uh, of people there on the sound stage, you know, on the sound platform, and uh, they knew who I was, and they were saying, you know, isn't it good that Paul is bringing attention to the, the problems that are here on the planet? And I said, yes. And they said, you know, wouldn't it be nice? And I said, well, you know, there are lots of um, organizations out there that are trying to do something about it. And they said to me, well, wouldn't it be wonderful, though, if there was an organization especially for Beatle people? And I said, wow, yeah, that would be a good idea. I, and I joked with them, and I said, now that you've all stopped screaming, maybe you've got some energy to spare to do other things. And so I did start the organization, but unfortunately, um, as, as much as many of us are concerned about the planet, nobody seems to really want to talk about it. People get uncomfortable, and uh, you know they, they'll tune into something different when you, when you start talking about the mm -hmm. fact that we do really need to make some changes in our behavior. But um, the, the first couple of things that I did when I started the organization was I remembered back to in the early 60s, I had done uh, Beatle reports. I'd done 60-second little anecdotes about the Beatles telling, you know, the truth about what was going on as opposed to all the, the silly stories that were in newspapers and magazines at the time. And so uh, I, I thought back to them. I knew that they had had a good response. And I thought, well, maybe I could do public service announcements on the, on the air. So I wrote all together over, the, you know, over 18 months 170 public service announcements, which I called Good Earthkeeping Tips. And they were broadcast all together on 9,200 radio stations across the country. And my brother let me use his song, Save the World, uh, as a backup track, you know, to, to behind the uh, the actual words of the message. So that's you well, know some of what what I was I was trying to do. Well, you know, um, you and I have talked about beetle consciousness and and what we had hoped uh, would come and evolve out of beetle consciousness. Besides people screaming, 
and having a good time and singing. Uh, what do you believe is, is central to what would might be called a Beatle philosophy? Oh, well, very, it's all very positive, and it starts with the, the, the concepts of love and peace and compassion, caring, and all of those things. And especially, you know, in today's climate, world climate, after 9-11, the, the whole Beatle philosophy has uh, been totally obliterated and turned over and not uh, paid any attention to because, you know, in trying to, um, what's the word, retaliate for the things, the crimes, you know, we, we, we've gone and, and uh, started to, to do the same thing back. And the only way I believe that you can ever get rid of, get rid of hate is with love. Uh, the Beatle philosophy uh, has a great deal to do with the fact that we are one people. Exactly. On one planet. Yes. You know, so wars, then it's, it, it's incongruous. It is uh, foolishness in the, in, in the, from the, a certain perspective um, to, to always kill and kill those who are related to you. That's right, yeah. And I believe that that's what the, the Lord Jesus Christ talked about frequently. I'm always amazed at how certain fundamentalists have interpreted that mean, to mean that, you know, he, we should become like Christ and go out and kill. That's, oh, yeah. that, that doesn't seem to make any sense at all. A bunch of sanctimonious hypocrites. Yeah, yeah. you know, it doesn't, doesn't uh, bode well for the future when our nation is uh, taken over by individuals who feel that, that Christ would have been a good uh, a warrior. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, the, the, the problem is that from the, you know, from the beginning of uh, there being humans on the planet, there's always been this hostility. I guess the, the reptilian part of the brain was the first part to develop, you know, the fright and flight uh, syndrome and, uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, hit out if somebody hits you. And, you know, we are supposedly supposed to have developed our brain to a better level, but still the majority of people are living on that reptilian um, level of consciousness. Yes, the old... And, you know, there have been so many crimes perpetrated throughout the history of mankind, and but we keep on going around in circles, and I'll hit you and you'll hit me, and I'll hit you back, and then you'll hit me back, and I'll hit you back, and you'll hit me back, and it just keeps on going. What we need to do, I think, is to to reach, a, to say, okay, we're going to say such and such a day, maybe 200 years in the future on July 20th or something, the day we hit the moon. Say in 200 years from now, we will say, this is day one, and all of the nonsense that went on before, all of the nasty stuff that we've done to each other will stop at that day. We will say no more and just go on from there that... Um, you know, we'll try start to have one day where we'll say, okay, what, what's past is past, and in the future, let's all try to be kind to each other. Now, as I say, I'm, I'm picking a date saying maybe 200 years from now. I doubt if we will have developed to that point by 200 years. But maybe eventually our consciousness will have developed, and not just our consciousness developed, but our knowledge of quantum physics and things like that will lead us to the point when we will understand better how futile all of this uh, this war and uh, stuff is. And, you know, maybe we'll just will gain enough intelligence and knowledge to be able to say, you know, let's put all the past behind us and let's start 
let's have a day one and go on from there being kind to each other because whatever we do to each other, we are doing to ourselves. Oh, yes, that's, uh, that's really... Uh, or as above, so below, as within, so without, et cetera, exactly. et cetera. You know, as, as George Harrison in the book, uh, His Words, Wit, and Wisdom noted, he said, I can say that being a beetle was no hindrance to my career. He, <laughs> that's about... <laughs> and, of course, after that, he had a lot of things to say about why he wasn't so happy yeah. about being a beetle. Uh, what, were, what were your brother George's views on beetle festivals and nostalgic uh, gatherings of that type? <clears throat> well... Um, he saw them a, a little differently than I did because he was the Beatle, you know, whereas I was his sister and also enjoyed the Beatle music and everything and could relate to the people who called themselves Beatle fans, but who, you know, whom I call the Beatle family. And, uh, I mean, now that, now that he's passed on to, the, to his next level of consciousness, I, I'm very, very confident that he understands all of these things far better now. But at that time, while he was still in his body, he was seeing it as, um, oh, I don't know, exploitation and, uh, you know, people making money out of it and all that kind of thing. But to me, it was just simply a way for the people who had heard that message, you know, had heard the message of love and peace, which, after all, I believe they were just the instruments of the Creator, to, to give that message. That was their task, was to come to Earth and give that message. And I also believe that I was put into that family with the gift of the gab <clears throat> to also continue that message from the female perspective. And so that's my role in life, to do that too. And so, you know, that's, that's really what it's all about, is getting that message out and hoping that people will hear it. Well, one of the things that you and I have discussed a couple of times is that it's wonderful to have basic ideas, ideals, and philosophy. But it certainly does help when you take that philosophy and put it into action. Yes. In working, in doing, in serving. And serving, a little later on, we'll, we'll touch on a, a project that you suggested to uh, uh, the mayor of Liverpool, which I thought is extraordinary, an important project to, uh, uh, dealing with... Uh, well, well, we'll talk about that a little later on. I don't want to get into that right now. Okay. Uh, but but the, could you review for us, uh, there was another project uh, that you've worked on for a while called Drop-In. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, well, that was the name of my non-profit organization, uh, you know, which turned out to be so terribly non-profitable. But um, <clears throat> the idea behind that was simply from the, this bunch of um, Beatle people who had asked me, uh, you know, maybe we could start uh, an organization for Beatle people, and so that was what I started. I called it Drop In because um, I was I was trying to go against that whole idea of dropping out because that might have seemed like a good idea at the time, but dropping out basically means that you are relinquishing your responsibility for what goes on in the world. And if people with conscious, you know, with a conscience, drop out, then it leaves those, you know, get, leaves all of the um, decisions and, uh, uh, you know, doing of the things to those who are un unscrupulous. So I believe that the people who have a conscience should drop in and take responsibility for what's going on and, you know, be watchdogs of, of, uh, of what the politicians are doing and what the uh, so-called organized religions are doing. 
and uh, you know try to see that uh, a little bit of common sense and and love and compassion uh, come to the fore rather than the the age-old greed and hatred. Well, bravo, because I think that's one of the big problems that that we find with so-called new age groups and and uh, many of those who are so enamored of the Beatle philosophy is that you know having important ideas or, uh, or evolved ideas concerning spirit, etc., are, are certainly positive. But lending a helping hand where helping hands are needed is, in my opinion, a bit more important, especially at this time period. Yeah. That's my bias, friends. We'll be back with our guest, Louise Harrison, George Harrison's elder sister, recalling his influence on their family and the world. We'll be right back. And as you know, Lou, George was my favorite Beatle, and I'm certain you've never heard that before. <laughs> you know, it's a funny thing. That's what everybody always seems to say to me. And they say, we're not just saying it because it's you. He really was my favorite Beatle, or is my favorite Beatle. <laughs> yeah, I, that's, that's true. There were a lot of individuals that grew with George over a period of time. Why do you think I, I might feel that way about your brother? Well, I don't know. You're a pretty nifty kind of an individual. You believe in the goodness of mankind, and I think he did. I think you believe that we're not just bodies, we also are spirit matter, and that we're all connected to each other, which was what he and I believed. So that could be why you connected up with him a bit. Yeah, I loved the songs as well. I mm -hmm. loved his music, but I was just um, bowled over by someone who was so bold to talk about we're more than just a physical body and and there are other things that are more important than uh, having a new car every year and stuff Happy like yes. that. Yeah. <laughs> where where do you think George picked up this important knowledge about the vested interests that control what we see, think, and hear oh, and do? Oh, that was from my dad. Ah, your dad? Yeah. Oh, tell us a little bit about that, well, please. Well, my dad was a very, very staunch union man back, uh, you know, in the, what was it, the 30s, 40s, I suppose. But although he was the uh, the treasurer for the Transport and General Workers Union in Liverpool, and he handled about 6,000 men, although he was, uh, you know, a staunch union man, he also could see, and it's funny because today what's happening in the world is proving what he was saying then, that unfortunately, although the union started off having an absolute um, wonderful, wonderful plan and being very, very needed to work against the abuses that um, employers were, you know, putting on to their workers, that he was concerned that going out on strike every 10 minutes for more money was going to price the workers out of the market eventually. Mm -hmm. And as we see, that has now happened in today's world because... The wonderful unions have gotten so much pay for people that now it, the products and services can be gotten for less money. And so those people that got their wonderful pay because of the unions are now don't even have a job. You know, so those are some of the things that my father was aware of. He also knew back then uh, some of the people who were working with the union who'd actually been to um, Soviet Russia and trained there in order to do things. And the, the whole communist plot at that time, if you can call it a plot, but the, their plan at that time was to bring the West down to its knees. Now, of course, since then, they've become more of our friends than they were back in the 40s. But at that time, the keeping on fighting for more and more money 
was, again, part of that master plan mm -hmm. to get the so-called richer countries of the West to bring them down to their knees, and, of course, it's pretty well succeeded. It sure has, unfortunately. But, it, you know, it's the spiritual insight that your brother had, that and yourself as well, yeah. that interests me most. What influence did Paramahansa Yogananda have on George? Quite a lot, and, in fact... Um, Myself, too. I, I joined uh, Paramahansa Yogananda's Self-Realization Fellowship back in 1970, I think it was, 1969, 1970, and have been a member of that ever since. And believing that uh, we are all one and that the great spirit, that there's a little drop of the great spirit within all of us, and that's what connects all of us together, you know, that we, we should be treating each other as family. Although the Beatle message was, Okay, good, wonderful music, but the real message underlying it all was the same as a, a number of messengers who've come to the planet over the last couple of thousand years, was, you know, love one another, let's live in peace, so goodwill to all men, and all of those kind of messages. And the Beatles were just more or less the 20th century's repackaging of that same message. Yeah, they sure were. And, um, yeah, you know, unfortunately, you know, we humans have not yet evolved to the point when we are seeing the bigger picture and understanding that our own little everyday petty little concerns are really very, very unimportant and that we really ought to look at humanity as a family and start trying to understand what can we do to benefit mankind as a whole and, you know, stop all this pilfering and fighting and everything and try to understand all of the differences there are I mean, the variety of people is wonderful. It's such a fantastic web of wonderful, wonderful differences and different cultures and everything. But unfortunately, what's happening in today's world is that they're trying to put stamp everybody with the same stamp and make everybody look and act the same. They're a whole bunch of robots, and they're giving all our kids in school this riddle and stuff. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. instead of appreciating the diversity of our species, and learning to enjoy the variety that there is out there and learning about other cultures and understanding and getting along together. But we haven't evolved to that point yet. But we'll, we'll move in that direction regardless. As you well, know, we, you know, you know let's face it, there are a handful of people, probably, you know, maybe even as many as a million worldwide who are starting to understand that, you know, that it is more important than the next movie that you go to see or the next football match. You know. uh, yeah. There are people that are start, starting to understand. Now, war again in the Middle East. What, what's your view on this? Well, I don't know. I, I, I just don't believe that hate's going to work. But somebody sent me a quote the other day by email, and the quote was this. And it's very much what's happening, you know, how we are being brainwashed now, being told that, uh, you know, we're going to have to take this guy out, even though um, it is a sovereign country and all of that kind of thing, and uh, because it, it, it's a danger to us. And this quote, I'll read it to you. It says, Naturally, the common people don't want war, neither in Russia nor in England nor, for that matter, in Germany. That is understood. But, after all, it is the leaders of the country who determine the policy, and it is always a simple matter to drag the people along, whether in a democracy, a fascist dictatorship, a parliament, or a communist dictatorship. Voice or no voice, 
The people can always be brought to the bidding of the leaders. It's easy. All you have to do is tell them they are being attacked and denounce the peacemakers for lack of patriotism and exposing the country to danger. It works the same in any country. Now, do you have any idea who said that? Who said that? Herman Goring. Oh, my heavens. Hitler's number two man. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know... That's right. Uh, and, and it's something that I think most Americans are totally ignorant of the fact of we've been manipulating various governments around the planet for decades. Years. Oh, yes. For decades. Yeah. We've been supplying uh, our very enemies with uh, uh, the tools of war, and they've been using them against us. That's right. Yeah. It's called karma. I mean, you know, who is who is benefiting from all of this? Well, the people who are... Um running arms factories and oil wells and all those kinds of things, I guess. Little Mr. Gimme again. Yes, it's Mr. Gimme again, I mean, Mm -hmm. which uh, has a lot to do with the reason why these wars can go on and on and on, because when you look into the portfolios of these individuals, you will find their involvement, very strong involvement, with very the with not just the, well the entire military industrial complex so to that's speak. That's right. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, like, you know, people who had uh, huge blocks of shares in Krupp's uh, armament factory during World War Two, you know, and things like that. Uh, unfortunately, the, the the common man doesn't really understand what's going on, and it takes me back to um, an editorial that I wrote for my uh, news splash newsletter that I used to put out for my organization where I was talking about um, the, the O.J. Simpson trial and how many people were so totally enthralled and involved and engrossed in it. And all it was, was it was really um, just a, tra- you know, a very, very small tragedy involving uh, two or three people where every day there are thousands of people being murdered in this country, uh, children starving to death, children being beaten to death by their parents, and, you know, things like that going on. And it's the, the things that are going on on TV, as my brother is, is saying, uh, you know, people are being brainwashed. It, it goes right back to the, the times of the Roman emperors when they had the games in the Colosseum and they would throw uh, Christians to the lions and so on and so forth. <clears throat> and they, you know, the emperor himself was quite cynical about it and just called those games, as, as now today's TV, the opiate of the masses figuring that as long as they had something that was um, interesting to keep them occupied, they weren't going to argue with the policies of the leaders. Yes, keep the going games going and everyone is happy. That's right. Uh, yeah. a- another project that you've discussed with Liverpool's Lord Mayor is yes. Come Together. Tell us a little bit about this idea. Well, that started, uh, oh, I guess, you know, a number of years ago. And the idea was, it was based around July 20th. The day we first set foot on the moon, or a man first set foot on the moon, was about the first time in human history that we really were able to get a clear picture of this Earth and what a tiny, fragile little um, sphere it is spinning around in space, and that this is really all we've got. It's life support systems, it's a closed system, and, uh, you know, that... Those resources are all we have to live with. And so the idea was to make that day, the July 20th, a day when we could really understand our own interdependence and interconnectedness, both with the planet and with each other. 
and uh, more recently we changed the name of it from Interdependence Day to Come Together Day, uh, and and the idea was that we would try to have something like a telethon, uh, you know, a world hookup, and instead of trying to raise money, we would try to raise awareness and have many many um, environmental and social um, charities come on and, and give a little talk about what they're doing and encourage people to join something. In other words, to drop in to some um, faction or some organization that is doing something, you know, uh, you know, actually accomplishing something to help the planet in some direction. And <clears throat> one of the themes to the thing was that there's a problem to suit every taste. So whatever it is you're interested in, whether it's drug abuse or saving the whales or um, whatever, to find the organization that is doing something about it and volunteer at least five hours a month to help, um, you know, clean up a river or whatever uh, so that we could encourage year after year after year as we would come together on that same day each year, we would um, track our progress and see, you know, maybe one group of people have decided to try to clean up a river in a certain place, and then we come together at the end of that year and see how well they have done, so that maybe after 10 years, we would see some, you know, some real progress happening, and more and more people would be encouraged to uh, join in with different projects to uh, improve things on the planet. Well, obviously, I think this is a gem of an idea. Uh, five hours a month isn't much much time but friends everyone can afford to do it everyone no it, it makes no difference as as, the, as lou mentioned it, it makes no difference where you're serving serve your community you don't necessarily have to travel 4582 miles to go serve somewhere else no. look in your own neighborhood uh, whether it has to do with you know as we used to do back in the old days is uh, carrying groceries to, to help someone across the street i know how corny that might sound but boy you know, look, looking around and yeah, find... Random acts of kindness, even, you know. Yes, random acts of kindness. Uh, service is key, in my opinion. Yeah. We, we can talk about all these wonderful things, but but um, in order to... Well, there's an old phrase uh, that I liked in the Ages Wisdom teachings called, We Live to Serve. Uh, when... When did you last meet with your brother, George, and, and, and what did you talk about? Well, it was about this time last year. It was about two weeks before he, um, you know, went on to the next level of consciousness. And uh, we we talked about a lot of things. And uh, he had always been concerned after John was killed and again after he himself was attacked in his own home. He was concerned about my safety, you know, by doing things out in the public. And I said to him, you know, you know I don't want you to be upset about me, but, you know, worried about my safety because... I'm being driven by exactly the same force as you four guys were driven to do what you had to do. And he said, yes, he said, I understand that now. And he said to me, you know, I'm sorry that I hadn't been more help to you. And I said, well, I understand why. Because, you know, he was in such a terribly awkward, traumatic position with, you know, everybody wanting to know every everything about him. You know, I just had a, an interview, I did an interview with a, a British newspaper person last night. And, you know, he wasn't interested in the real questions. He wanted to know things like, you know, what happened to George's ashes and all that kind of stuff. Well, I don't know, and it really doesn't matter. I mean, he's not anywhere around his ashes anymore. You know, his spirit's doing fine. And, uh, you know, th th they worry about such silly 
trivial things. They're still asking the silly, trivial questions yeah. that they asked in 1962, 63, yeah, and 64. exactly. You know, uh, one last thing. Could you tell us about the tribute album uh, that... that was, um, uh, I think, I believe it was made by a professor of classical guitar? Oh, yes. Uh, this this is rather interesting. A friend of mine who is a professor of classical guitar here at the university, and he has played, you know, at many, many uh, very, very prestigious places, including at the White House and everything. He's just a, a wonderful, wonderful guitarist. Last year we were talking, when, when we first were hearing that George was seriously ill and he I, I was talking to him about how George loved classical guitar and he loved uh, Segovia. And he said, well, I've always loved George's music so much. He said, I'd like to be able to give something back to him. Maybe I could make him a little CD of classical uh, versions of his own songs. And I said, oh, yeah, he'd love that. So he started working on it. And then, of course, George you know, went and di- died a bit too fast before we could get the uh, little gift to him. So uh, this year he continued uh, working on the album, and I have some friends at um, Sony in New York, and I talked to them. I don't know if they're going to pick it up. Their classical division are going to pick it up and distribute it. Well, we have but to pick ourselves up and, and end our little discussion here tonight. Louise Harrison, please join us again here on 21st Century Radio, and thank you for joining us. And friends, bye, brainwash. And that's the show. 21st Century Radio is produced by Hieronymus and Company. Our executive producer and research assistant is Laura Cordner. Our engineer is Anita Brockington, and I'm Dr. Bob Hieronymus.